Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, you might say that we're going back to the future. Throughout a very eventful 2022, we heard some noteworthy and even provocative perspectives on some of the top challenges we faced, such as the highest inflation surge in 40 years, an economy still struggling to recover from the worst pandemic in a century, and the largest ground war to break out in Europe since World War II. So let's get right into it with the perspective of Jason Furman, an economist and professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Furman uh, also served as chair of the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors. Appearing on this show in January, Furman sounded some alarm bells about inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell retired the term transitory, but most of the forecasts still assume that after being 7% this year, inflation next year will be in the twos, possibly even in the low twos. I'm less sure. There are some forces that are going to be pushing inflation down, but I think we shouldn't neglect four forces pushing in the opposite direction. The first is that we're going into 2022 with labor markets that are much tighter than we went into 2021 with. Nominal wages rising faster, quits very high, the unemployment rate comparatively low. Second, there is very good reason to expect another year where demand is above trend as fiscal stimulus continues to spend out and supply is below trend as the pandemic continues to affect the ability to produce things. Third, inflation depends on inflation expectations, and consumers, businesses, markets, and forecasters are all expecting higher inflation this year than they were last year. That will feed into actual inflation. Um, And finally, I think and hope that the pandemic will become more of a controlled endemic this year, that that will be good news for our lives. But with that, there'll be a burst of extra spending and some more inflation. Most of the inflation we've seen to date is, I pin roughly half of it on the fallout from the pandemic. It's a global phenomenon, there's global supply chains, and I'd pin about half of it on fiscal policy being excessive. We needed a really large response to the crisis. It was a huge one. Um, We got a response that was probably about a trillion dollars more than we needed, and that's fed into inflation. I think the Fed has been a little bit behind the curve, but that's probably not affecting the inflation numbers yet because monetary policy really matters with a lag. What the Fed does today matters for inflation, say, a year from now. And so the Fed probably should have adjusted more quickly, but even if they had, we'd be in roughly the same place right now. That was economist Jason Furman of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, appearing on Facing the Future in January. Well, 2022 was the year that our total national debt topped $31 trillion. 
economist Wendy Edelberg of the Brookings Institution and Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute tried to put that into perspective during a virtual panel discussion we held in March, co-hosted by the Warren B. Rudman Center at the University of New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce School of Law. The event was one of dozens we held across the country in celebration of the organization's uh, 30th anniversary. Author and journalist Laura Canoy served as our moderator, and she first turned to Wendy Edelberg. The amount of debt that's actually held by the public that's not held by different parts of the federal government, uh, where it's like a wife lending money to her husband or a husband lending money to her wife, his wife, um, is $20 trillion. But I don't know that $20 trillion is much more meaningful or $21 trillion is much more meaningful than $30 trillion. So it's the easiest way to think about how big of a deal that is, is how hard it is to finance, what our net interest costs are. And there, net interest as a share of GDP right now is about one and a half percent. That is actually lower than it was in any year between 1980 and 2000. Those, that 20 year period. So it's a really big number when you think about the total amount of debt, but the cost of actually financing it right now is pretty modest compared to the size of the economy. Could you give us that too, Wendy? Because I often hear the debt described as a share of the economy. And right. I think that gives listeners a sense also of how big it is, how worrisome it might be. So give us that too, please. Uh, so as a share of GDP right now, debt is about a hundred percent. But but let's be clear, there's nothing particularly magical about debt as a share of GDP. Is it less than a hundred? Is it more than a hundred? It, it's really just a way of gauging how big debt is relative to the share of the economy. Since you know the economy is growing over time, it's quite reasonable that you would think that the amount of debt should be growing over time. So it's a useful measure to see, is it growing faster or more slowly than the overall economy. So for example, we know that debt as a share of GDP in our projections under current law is going to move sideways for a little while. And then over the long term, spending is going to outpace revenues and debt as a share of GDP is projected to rise. That's where we get the angst of this feels unsustainable. I see. Yeah. So Brian, how about you? How do you put this big, big number, whether as Wendy mm -hmm. said, it's 20 trillion or 30 trillion, how do you put that into context for folks and, and make it real? Yeah, I mean, I, the number that I use that I think is a better number is $23 trillion, which is the debt if you subtract like trust fund debt, which is money, money that wasn't actually borrowed from the economy, but is kind of the government like collecting taxes and then lending it to itself. So I use about $23 trillion as the most relevant number in terms of the economy. To put that in terms regular people can understand, it comes to about $177,000 per household. Now, that's a scary number, although I want to assure most households, you're not going to be paying back the full 177000 per household. We're really not going to pay back the debt, but you are on hook for the interest on the debt. In terms of putting the debt in its context, it was 100% of the economy at the peak of World War II. Then it dropped to about 23% of the economy by the mid-70s and was still only about 40% of the economy before the Great Recession started. It has since spiked from 40 to 100% of the economy um, just since the Great Recession started in 2008. And if you count state and local government uh, debt, it's actually closer to about 160% of the economy. 
that's bigger than most countries. I think Japan is bigger. Italy and Greece are bigger, but not that's about it. And the danger moving forward is while the debt is 100 percent of GDP right now at the federal level, we have these huge imbalances moving forward in the baseline that are projected. And so according to the Congressional Budget Office, we're going to go to about 200 percent of GDP in the next 30 years. And that's the baseline projection. So that doesn't take into account additional tax cuts, additional spending. If you just kind of keep today's government on autopilot, you'll go to about 200% of GDP. And that's what economists debate is how big of a debt, what share of GDP becomes really dangerous and bad for the economy. Economic developments in 2022 were certainly a challenge. Some indicators even seemed contradictory at times. So we got a first quarter economic breakdown from Douglas Holtz Eakin, former director of the Congressional Budget Office and now president of the American Action Forum. I thought it would have a positive sign. So uh, when you look inside the report, you know, did, did, I, did I have that instinct right? Yeah, yeah, we saw some big inventory declines and they subtracted nearly a percentage point from GDP. But the bigger impact was uh, net exports, uh, which showed a, a real sharp down uh, pull, about three percentage points. So uh, I think the right way to think about this report is to say, okay, what am I worried about? Uh, in the U.S., we're worried about inflation and an overheated economy. Uh, what what households and businesses look like in this report? Well, final sales to domestic purchasers up 2.6 percent. Um, that's not a downturn. That that's a, an economy that's still growing. Inflation that's eight percent. And so, the problems we had on Wednesday before the report are the same problems we had on Thursday after the report. And I don't think we should change course in any way because of it. I mean, the Fed should move down its its path of tightening, and uh, fiscal policy does not need to stimulate the economy or do anything else that might exacerbate inflation. We are not seeing the typical seasonal patterns because of the the COVID nineteen interference. And there's really not a lot to do about that, to, except to know that you should be taking the numbers with a grain of salt. It's not just G- GDP. We, we seasonally adjust a huge array of economic data from name it, uh, retail sales and, and everything that we get on a, on a monthly basis. So the right thing to do is to look at all of the reports and discern the underlying trends in the economy and not rely on a single report like GDP. It's a good summary, but, but we're, we're looking every month and, and even weekly at things like unemployment insurance claims to look at the strength of the economy. We know that international and national supply chains have been uh, disrupted by the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And we've had trouble finding drivers for trucks and we've had trouble with ports and we had all sorts of things. And it's not a crazy notion that in those circumstances, firms would give up on the just-in-time system they have and suddenly hold more inventory. So you might see a run-up that doesn't have a run-down as they sort of provision for operating in the face of the pandemic. So some of that's probably going on. How much and in what season? Not a clue. So you know we're, we're faced with the difficulty of interpreting these data, and I, and I don't see easy resolution to it. That was economist Douglas Holtz-Eakin, who at one point served as the chief economist of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Bush administration in the early 2000s. Well, another troubling trend was underscored about halfway through the year when the trustees of the Social Security and Medicare trust funds came out with their annual reports, showing that within a few years, both of the Social Security trust funds and the Medicare hospital insurance trust fund face insolvency. 
So we turn to policy expert Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget for a look at how we could potentially fix Social Security. It's not just that lifetime benefits are growing from cohort to cohort. It's actually that um, they're growing disproportionately for the wealthiest, highest earning seniors, uh, because those are the ones that are seeing the biggest gains in their life expectancy uh, and recording the most increases in their, in, their, in their wage income. So the kinds of policies that make the benefit formula more progressive also get at the core of this cost growth. Uh, with that said, um, and that's while I would absolutely focus on that as my, as my biggest savings, uh, we have an economic problem separate from our, separate but related to our social security problem. And that is we have an aging population. We're seeing this now with inflation. Um, workers that are, that are near retirement have left the labor force and aren't coming back. Um, we're not replacing them with new workers because we've basically cut off the immigration spigot because we're not having a lot of kids. We have to deal with that. And, and social security can help. Social security sends many important signals and incentives to people about how much to save how long to work, when to retire, how to retire. And so adjustments to things like the retirement age, changing the way the benefits are calculated. So we look at you on an annual basis um, and count all of your years of work rather than basically giving you nothing for your last few years of, of, of work. Mm -hmm. uh, getting rid of the retirement earnings test, which everybody thinks is a tax, even though it's a, it's a deferral. Changing some of the language around social security. These kinds of changes can encourage people that want to to work longer which it turns out is not only good for Social Security and for the economy, it's also usually good for the individual. People that, that delay their retirement and work longer um, tend to live longer, tend to be happier, healthier. They drink less. They have lower divorce rates because they're not home annoying their spouse all day. <laughs> uh, on, every, on every angle, um, working longer seems to, seems to be a benefit for both the individual and society. I think the idea of taking Social Security's existing payroll tax, which is already woefully insufficient to cover current benefits, right? Like 25% insufficient and diverting some of that to a, to a private account would be a huge mistake. Um, but despite the market's ups and downs, overall, since the 1990s, the stock market has done quite well. There are not enough Americans, I think, um, invested in additional ways to secure their own, their own retirement, invested in the gains to capital um, and able to take advantage of them. And so private accounts that are on top of the existing social security tax um, I think, again, could be good for households and good for the economy to the extent it pushes up the savings rate. We have a plan that, you know, we wrote through Concord Coalition. What we suggested is that there is a automatic deduction from your um, from your wages, just like the payroll tax of another uh -huh. 20%. Um, and you can opt out at any time. So, but what we've learned from automatic contributions is usually people don't. Usually people just like to go with the flow. Mm -hmm. um, if we're taking money every um, every paycheck and putting it into an account for you, you're probably going to continue to do that unless you really need the money. And then you can opt out under our plan. We'd then sort of re-opt you in every five or five years or so. So you don't lose too much, but um, we would make it voluntary, but with that heavy nudge to try to get, get you con contributing. As the year wound on, inflation became a much more serious concern, prompting the board of governors of the Federal Reserve to raise the federal funds rate significantly. And they did it more than once. This effort to slow economic demand uh, finally at the end of the year is starting to show signs that it's working. But economist Claudia Salm, speaking to Concord's policy director, Tory Gorman, in October, was critical of the Fed's strategy for dealing with inflation. The Fed has the tools to cool off demand-driven inflation. Like Basically, they can make us all a little bit poor, throw some people out of work, make it harder to borrow. Um, 
they're not cows, but this is their tool. If that were the only source of inflation, I would be more sympathetic to what the Fed is doing. Mm-hmm. They've done too much, but I'm sympathetic, but that's not, we have supply driven and like something in housing, the Fed makes it worse. They're not going to be building more housing when interest rates and mortgage rates are just through the roof. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where there's a balance. Right. You know, and you have to address the problem that you actually have. Okay, so so let's talk about you mentioned uh, you've been a very vocal critic of the Federal Reserve that it's moving too aggressively. It's been raising interest rates too big, too fast to tame inflation and that bad things are on the horizon if they don't slow down. But the September inflation report was a stunner. Okay, core inflation hit a 40 year high despite five months of previous interest rate increases. So why should the Fed slow down? What do you see? There is disinflation. So this is factors that will push down consumer price inflation. We see them. We see them in official data. This isn't just, oh, somebody's pulled together like a shipping cost indicator and supply. This is in data that will eventually show up in CPI. So in particular, producer prices. So Mm -hmm. what what it costs Target to buy the teddy bear that my son's going to want, they're finally like paying less and less. In some cases, prices are falling, right? And and, in energy intensive goods, you've seen them fall. And this has been going on for months. Right now, people are still buying. So sure. I mean, these businesses, if you're short-sighted enough, it's like, you know, if you keep raising prices, the Fed will keep going and we will be in a recession and you won't have anyone that wants to buy your teddy bear, right? So there is a process that like, I wish we were uh, thinking about it. I know, and we all know from very carefully collected statistics that those prices businesses are getting their stuff with are coming down. Um, and particularly when you look month over month, like whatever's happening recently, wage growth for low wage workers has slowed a lot. That's another input cost. We Another thing that's a little wonky, but I'll explain it, is uh, import prices. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates very quickly and a lot. I was with them until like the last couple of meetings. So I think mm-hmm. they've done enough and they need to be kind of patient. As they raise interest rates, that means that buying U.S. Treasuries, that's that's good. I mean, it pays off for investors. And we have raised interest rates more quickly than many of our peer countries, such as in Europe. And, and so investors abroad want to buy U.S. Treasuries. Well, it turns out you got to buy them in dollars. So the demand for dollars has gone up. And the, so the strength of the dollar relative to other currencies, and this is like the whole advanced world. I mean, the dollar is really strong. Well, it's a a beggar thy neighbor strategy. Like we are importing disinflation. So things that will eventually push down inflation because eventually competitive forces will get, you know, the businesses to lower prices or at least stop raising them so quickly, which is what inflation is, the increases. But we're exporting inflation. We're making it more expensive for in particular countries in Europe that are the front line against Putin we, we are pushing inflation at them and they're already dealing with really high energy inflation. So we're going to bring down U.S. inflation. It's clear it's coming. It makes me sad that Americans are paying more and especially the necessities. But it also makes me sad that we're solving it by destroying demand in other countries. 
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and we're listening to the best of 2022 on this program. Stay with us and we'll hear more after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and we're listening to the best of Facing the Future 2022 as we wind down the year. Well, this was a year the Concord Coalition uh, also tackled some challenges one might not think would be directly connected to the federal budget or the economy, but have proven to, to have a huge impact on both, at least in this year. So I'm talking about climate change, the COVID-19 pandemic, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One of the guests we had on earlier this year was Brian Keene, president of Smart Power. Brian was a veteran of the 1992 Songa's presidential campaign and was one of the original field directors of the Concord Coalition. Brian joined us to talk about the strong connection between fiscal sustainability of the federal budget and environmental sustainability. What I think we're really seeing is kind of a, first and foremost, it's an, it's an understanding that climate change is real. Climate change can, does directly impact our federal budget and it impacts our ability to collect taxes and impacts our ability as a society to actually do things. To put it really specific, climate change actually creates kind of, uh, we're, we're already seeing it, you know, bigger storms, um, bigger challenges environmentally. So we have, you know, more hurricanes, we have worse hurricanes, we have more flooding, we have uh, more snowstorms when we're not supposed to have snowstorms. That all directly impacts as basic as tax collections, right? So by the way, every time a flight is canceled, that has an economic impact on society, on our government. Every time a community is flooded, huge impact. And so those financial impacts are very real. We understand that today, the biggest challenge facing the planet is actually the change in climate, the change in temperatures. And what can we as a government, what can we as individuals do to actually mitigate that. And that's really kind of where it comes down. So that's, that I think is kind of really fascinating that we're already, that the government itself is actually having that conversation and we're there. And then I think we get into kind of the specifics of, well, how, you know, is there going to be a, a you know, multi-billion dollar bill, a trillion dollar bill on climate? How are we going to do this? And that really then becomes well the priorities of a specific administration and ultimately the government and, and, the, and I should say the kind of the voters at the time. Um, and I think we're really seeing that there is a huge movement um, from really voters uh, to do something about climate. It goes right back to kind of that same angst that we had when we started the Concord Coalition, which was how do you actually get people to personally do something about the federal budget deficit when it's such a huge challenge? And that's the same thing with climate change. How do you actually get individuals to actually personally do something take a vested interest in the environment, in climate change, when it's such a huge issue. And that's really kind of what Corporate Smart Power does, very similar to what the work we did with our Concord Coalition. That was Brian Keene of Smart Power talking about the interconnectivity of fiscal sustainability and environmental sustainability. But we also went in depth to explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which wreaked havoc on the global economy and public health systems and is largely responsible for the supply chain disruptions that uh, have contributed so heavily to inflation. 
Joining us in January of 2022 was Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, who, in our segment, correctly predicted the pandemic's next big economic disruption. Omicron really has illustrated this more than the other variants, is when you have a very highly infectious agent sweep through a community for four or five or six weeks, you bring the economy, you bring life as we know it to its knees. I mean, we have seen over the course of the last three to four weeks, absentee rates at work, 30, 40%, not only in healthcare, but in every other aspect of our lives. That's why garbage isn't getting picked up in a lot of places. That's why pharmacies have been closed two and three days out of the week. Uh, that's why we see so many aspects of first response being delayed, if not even available. And I could go through a laundry list of all of these things. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what is the investment we make to build up and sustain the infrastructure so that this doesn't happen again? Take this off the table. The final piece I'd add, and I, and I think, Bob, this is really an important point that people are missing right now. I think the wild card that is yet to really set the final agenda for the world economy and COVID is China. I think China right now is on the brink of potential major failure. Omicron has so changed the transmission characteristics of this virus, meaning much more highly infectious. China and what I would call their draconian public health approach to dealing with COVID have done a pretty darn good job of controlling it for the last two years since Wuhan. And it's meant shutting down, locking down major metropolitan areas of 14 million for weeks at a time with just very few cases. If you look at their numbers, they are sure a lot better than ours, but it came at a real cost. Their zero COVID policy cannot be sustained. Omicron is the wind. You can deflect it, but you can't stop it. And I think what you're gonna see happen over the course of the next six to eight weeks is in China, there's gonna be more and more widespread Omicron transmission. They are going to, because of zero COVID policy, try to shut things down, major geographic areas. And with that, they're gonna shut down manufacturing. Many of the supply chains that the world depends on will be unavailable, more so than any time during the pandemic. And I don't think they're gonna be quick to relent in their approach to this kind of zero COVID policy. Um, I think that is a huge, huge economic issue right now. Imagine from a global supply chain basis, if much of China starts to shut down. Now, finally, I'd say, well, you know, hopefully they can do better, but it turns out that the two vaccines that they have brought forward, both the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines, appear to be relatively ineffective against Omicron. So here they have this large vaccinated population, which is a remarkable accomplishment, but with vaccines that may have very little impact on who gets infected, who transmits the virus in China. So I, I think from an economic standpoint, those are not ripple effects from China. That could be one major tsunami economically. And I, I, I don't think the world sees it yet. That was Dr. Michael Osterholm, one of President Biden's transition team COVID advisors, speaking on Facing the Future in January. One of the other major tragic events of the year is the ongoing brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has also contributed to inflation by spiking energy and food prices and caused the U.S. to commit more than $100 billion so far on military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. 
In July of this year, scholar Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution put the Biden administration's response to the Russian invasion in perspective. The Biden team tended to say, if you know, if Putin attacks, there's nothing we can do about it. We're going to make sure the world knows it was his fault and he's going to hang himself with his own petard. But in fact, he's now damaging much of the world with his with his horrible decision. And it's fun. Again, fundamentally, uh, we should blame Putin, not the United States or, or the West. But I think we fail to anticipate just how ugly this could be. You know, the CIA gets correct credit for having seen some of what Putin was planning, for allowing Biden to telegraph to the world, this is going to be Putin's decision. It's a war of aggression. But the CIA did not do a particularly good job at understanding how this war could get ugly and be long. In fact, most people, as a rule, intelligence agencies or not, tend to underappreciate the likelihood that war will go badly and worse than predicted, or at least not the way they anticipate prior to the bullets being shot. And and so now we're in that protracted state and we don't really know how we get out of it. I mean, one way is Putin wins, but none of us want that. And God bless the Ukrainians. I don't think Putin's going to win a clean, clear, decisive, overwhelming victory where he actually replaces the Zelensky government or takes half of Ukraine or achieves some other transformative effect like that. He is sitting on about 20 percent of Ukraine's land right now, of course, and maybe he'll decide that's enough and look for a way to establish a ceasefire. But President Zelensky just said he wouldn't tolerate such a ceasefire. Uh, And so I think until the Ukrainians get tired of the fight, I mean, they are tired in one sense. It's been so tragic for their country. But until they come to the conclusion that they can't retake much or most of their territory, they're going to want to see how they can use our high mobility artillery rocket systems and other strike platforms to maybe have a chance of going on the counteroffensive. So inevitably, that's going to have to play out. The best case scenario is both sides start to conclude that they've achieved some gains. You know, at least Ukraine's held on to its country, most of its territory, its capital city, its government. Maybe they win a little bit of land back. Maybe they start a diplomatic process that could schedule referenda for possibly getting other parts of it back someday. And that maybe becomes good enough for them. And then maybe for Russia, same thing, that as long as they know that Ukraine's not going to be in NATO, They can still hold on to some of the territory, at least for the moment. And most of all, they sent a clear message that the West cannot, you know, bring Ukraine into its orbit, that Putin could claim a victory. The worst case is, you know, years of fighting or also the possibility of ceasefires being created and then failing and perhaps even preparing or giving an opportunity for each side to prepare, especially for Russia to prepare the next offensive such that the ceasefire winds up serving the cause of war more than the cause of peace. So there are a lot of ways this can still go bad, not to mention escalation and direct risk of combat between NATO and Russia. And I don't rule that out completely either. I'm not suggesting anybody should go to you know bed tonight fearful for nuclear war. But at some point, if Putin decides he's losing, the fact that we're doing so much to help Ukraine has to really get under his skin. And he, you know, he has to wonder if he can sort of take us to the brink of a risk of direct war to get us to either desist or to at least enter into a broad diplomatic process that gives him a chance of achieving some of his goals or solidifying some of his goals, uh, you know, codifying them in a way that he couldn't otherwise. Um, So I'm nervous about all that stuff going forward. There's no easy answer for how this ends. 
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to some of the highlights from our episodes of 2022 as we prepare to greet the new year. We'll have more after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're taking a look back at the best of our program in 2022, and this year was a special year. That's because the late Senators Paul Songus, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Warren Rudman, a Republican from New Hampshire, together with former Commerce Secretary Peter G. Peterson, banded together to found the Concord Coalition. Yep, 30 years ago. So it was a big anniversary year for us, and we had several conversations to mark that uh, special occasion, including with advisor to four presidents, David Gergen. In September, we spoke to Concord Coalition co-chairs, former Democratic Senator and Governor of Nebraska, Bob Kerry, who's a Vietnam War Medal of Honor recipient, and former Republican Missouri Senator Jack Danforth, who, among other things, is both a practicing attorney and an ordained minister. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman had the relevant question for the former senators. One of the biggest changes in the economy this year is the end of, of free money. Uh, for the last decade, uh, historically low interest rates have helped the government. Decade, been since 2008. <laughs> That's 14 years. Right. So a decade and a half has helped the federal <laughs> government amass you know, big debt with little cost. But now, as you say, as you point out, interest rates are rising fast in response to inflation. So my question is, is do you- the, the, the interest rates are not, they are rising fast, they're normalizing. Right. They're going back to normal rates. So, but do you, uh, but do you think that that re return to normal, return, reversion to trend, will that finally refocus Congress on our nation's debt and deficits? Do you think that the policymakers will respond to today's higher interest rates by rethinking what they're doing in Congress? I, no, I, no, I don't, not at yeah, all. I'm, I'm with Jack. There. Oh. We got bi we got bipartisan <laughs> agreements. <is that>? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're they're single minded for. I mean, for I can't say for every member of Congress, but for the majority, the single minded focus on each one of them is winning the next election. That's it. Doesn't have to do with our children or our grandchildren or some governmental problem, even one that's, say, three years away. What's going to affect my election? And the way to get popular is spend money. You know, I thought when Biden announced the college debt forgiveness, $10,000 in an election year, well, that's, that's how to become popular. Now, he could have become twice as popular by making it 20,000, or he could make it 10 times more popular, whatever. It, it is it, the interesting thing about a lot of the spending that, that the way politicians like to talk about it to make it seem good and wise is to call it investment. To the typical politician, throwing money out of an airplane would be called an investment. <laughs> so it's, it's no, I, I wish I could be optimistic that something would induce a political response. But the only thing that 
could possibly induce a political response is to force the issue. And I mean in campaign after campaign, for the media to be hounding candidates, for organizations such as ours to be raising the visibility of the issue so that candidates couldn't just dance around it anymore. Yeah, look, I think it, it increases the importance of the Concord Coalition. You can look in Congress and you can see a Joe Manchin, or you can, you can, people that are actually trying to do something about the debt. The, the number of uh, members of Congress, the 535 members of Congress who care about this issue is, and actually do something about it, support legislation that would, that would help solve the problem, that number isn't zero. Out of 535, I'm not sure it's 10%, but praise the people who care about it and are actually doing something about it. Uh, and that's basically what Concord's trying to do. When Paul Songus was running for president in 92, I mean, he was, uh, Jack, he, he had a great message. And I, you've served with him, so you probably knew him better than, than, than I did. I just got to know him during that campaign. But he was, it was economic patriotism. That was his message. Uh, and it's what we need. Uh, yep. We don't need to run. You know, thank you for your service. I get that all the time. So thank me for my service. It's a little late for that. I mean, you can. Uh, I'll thank you if you can get engaged with that. You don't have to go into combat today uh, to do something good for your country. Uh, and so what we what we do need are economic patriots who understand, uh, you know, that freedom isn't free. It doesn't. You got you got to actually do something uh, to have the next generation say. You know, thank goodness for the Concord Coalition. I think we are. We were lucky to be joined on the program this summer by one member of Congress who is definitely not part of the Do Nothing Caucus. Democrat Ed Case of Hawaii is one of an endangered species of so-called blue dog Democrats who are fiscally conservative members of their caucus. Case says, though politics have shifted over the years, he will not give up working to convince his colleagues on both sides of the aisle why we must take our debt crisis more seriously and put the federal budget on a more sustainable path. If you operate a government uh, di fundamentally differently from, from a family budget or a business budget, it does catch up with you. And, you know, we've got a whole line of uh, thought out there right now in this country that, that what I just said is not true, and that, in fact, governments can have their cake and eat it too. And to that, I say, look around the world at examples of governments that have tried to have their cake and eat it too, and it doesn't work too well. And I, you could go to, you could go through any number of examples of that, and in, in countries in, you know, uh, Europe or South America, you have a current example going on in Turkey, for example. Um, so you know, you you can't escape the music at some point, and. Um, Many of my colleagues are busy trying to escape the music in one way, shape, or form, and and so um, I, I I think we've gotten away from that, and I think it's I think it's dangerous to our national security, and so that that's fundamentally, um, you know, where I'm coming from. I I also don't think budgets are these you know stark, you know, uh, pieces of paper. They they reflect public values and public policy and public judgments about where to allocate resources, where to allocate burdens. Uh, what, what, where to, where to try to solve um, the, the problems of our country, both short-term, mid-term, long-term, where to allocate the responsibilities for those. So these are policy judgments. The point is that at the end of the day, when you make your judgments about um, uh, revenues, expenses, and debt, that it adds up to a fiscally sustainable package. So for example, sometimes I hear people 
say, well, you know, Representative Case, you know, you're so into the budget. That must mean that you're that you're a, a small government, small tax, you know, small debt guy. And that's not the case. And I'm just trying to get to a balance. And if the judgment is um, that we if the judgment is that we need a larger government that is that is financed by some level of taxation different from what we have today. Um, if that's the judgment and if I agree with it, okay, I do. But if it's a small government and, you know, the revenue balance is different, that's okay too. The point is that whatever your, whatever your judgments are on your level of income and expenses, um, recognizing that there are, are consequences uh, to all of those levels and to debt as well, that it add up to a fiscally sustainable uh, package. That was Democratic Congressman Ed Case of Hawaii. For the last word on this final Facing the Future program for 2022, we turn to David Gergen. What a privilege to have David on, not once, but twice this year. Gergen was a top-level White House advisor to four U.S. presidents. That would be Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. So he knows a thing or two about leadership and crisis management. In fact, David Gergen wrote a new book exploring the subject called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. We understand that if you really want to get things done, you need to do it with through collaboration with others. You need to have a constructive collaboration in which you're working with people who are not like you, who don't look like you, who may, who may have different accents than what you have, but you're trying to, to reach them and understand them and have them understand you. And that requires a lot of listening. It requires patience. And it requires a lot of trust. Um, and it's it is um, it's something we don't we don't have enough of any of those qualities right now, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, in our schools, you know what we're going through with these, these racial questions in schools now, and what what should be taught in K twelve. Uh, these are really hard issues, and I, I think that for, for we're going to lose a lot of teachers um, if we're not careful. I'm, I'm told right now that one because there's so much exhaustion and burnout. And, and teachers and, and principals and superintendents have been under fire so much in some communities um, on critical race theory, for example, um, that, it, uh, that it's, it's been very, very hard on, on the teacher corps. One, I'm told that one third of the positions of superintendent in our public schools are now vacant. Wow. I, I, I had not known that, and I was really quite shocked by it. Um, and it is, uh, I, I've seen this in schools of education. They're not attracting people there. A lot of young people are saying, I don't want to go through that. You know, they, they don't want to go through, you know, if we're trying to encourage people to get into the public arena, as, as I think most of us on this program believe, um, there, there, there's got to be, we, we've got to at least they be trusted to deliver a, de a decent experience. You know, you get you get paid a decent amount of money. You're you're treated with respect. You're not people are not sending out your outside your home with signs and, and you know which is what some teachers are going through right now. Um, they, they, we're, we're, in so many ways, when we know that we have these big crises, Bob started with the, the big crises we're facing. In so many ways, we're actually going backwards. You know, we we haven't. I see I see a growing number of really interesting, sparky honest, brave people who are getting involved in our politics, some coming from the left. I, I talked about AOC, much as I disagree with their politics, I like people like that to be in the mix. Uh, but we also have the veterans who are coming back now from Afghanistan and, and Iraq 
who were taking off their uniforms, just like World War II veterans, and trying to get into the public arena running for office. I'm very involved in a group to try to get young veterans to go run for Congress. And uh, we, we now have 25 members of the House of Representatives in a caucus uh, uh, made up of veterans, uh, young veterans uh, from both sides of the aisle. And they sign a pledge to, to work across the aisle before they go in. It's, it's something I think would appeal a lot to, to you on what you work on and how you try to put together coalitions on, on, the, on, the, on the financial side. Uh, but I have seen people who do that. Some of these young veterans coming back, that, that is what we need more of. We simply don't have enough people like that who are going to motivate the country and are going to make people feel like this is really important. It's really important to the future of your grandkids. You know, the Adam Kinzinger of, of the world, Liz Cheney of the world, you know, are being very brave uh, against a lot of pressure. Um, but so I, 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 I have more, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a long-term, a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. I'm more hopeful about the future. As we navigate these turbulent times, I hope David Gergen's optimism proves correct. We're all going to need to pitch in to make our government more fiscally responsible. Now, to listen to any of the past programs you heard today, visit our website, conqueredcoalition.org. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Join me again next week for another episode of Facing the Future. And have a happy new year. <laughs>